This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hey, everybody. Can you believe it's 2020? This is wild. We are in a new decade. And as we kick off the new year, I wanted to start with something that could potentially impact the health decisions that you make. Dr. Zach Bush is brilliant and his work provides insights into human health and longevity. He's one of the few triple board certified physicians in the country with an expertise in internal medicine, endocrinology, metabolism, and palliative care. I was so excited to have him on the show to talk about his work, our microbiomes, the benefits of being in nature, regenerative farming, and how it could save us from a climate crisis, and so much more. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so glad to be with you and your whole audience. I'm very excited. Um, and this is fun, I think, for people there. I'd imagine that listeners at home uh, saw you announced today and thought, oh, they were there. are they related? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Dr. Bush and, and me, but no, we are not. But we talked about it before we started recording, how you and I have a bit of an inverse story. I wanted to be a doctor, wound up becoming an actor. You never wanted to be a doctor, and now you are a doctor. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm curious sort of about your story. You know, we can get into big ideas, uh, and, and you have such a wealth of knowledge about health and food systems, but were you, who were you as a kid? You know, who, who mm -hmm. was Zach at 10? What did you want to be? And, and how did you wind up here? Super introverted kid uh, growing up. I was super shy. I grew up in low-income housing and outside of Boulder, Colorado, a couple of hippie parents, and uh, they were lovely to, to grow up around. Um, yeah, one of the things that I recently realized um, uh, in another interview was that 
I didn't know what I looked like for a long time. I, went, I think kids are so used to knowing exactly what they look like, and they're taking selfies all the time. And they're, but uh, growing up in the in the in the early seventies, like there weren't full length mirrors everywhere, especially in low income housing. There weren't mm-hmm. weren't mirrors, and so when you're three feet tall, there's no access to a typical mirror, and nobody's got cameras. You know, you're mm-hmm. you might see a few snapshots a year of yourself or something like that. But I. I re- I'm realizing now that I think I went through all my formative years not really realizing what I looked like. And so the who who was I was very much an internal process and maybe more so for being an introvert. I always had kind of one one best friend and um, my best friend Jake was with me from birth basically all the way through like t- age 12. And then I had another like little group of, you know, five friends that took me all the way through college. And so very few people had an influence on my my little micro world there. But the the way in which especially my core friends in junior high and high school affected me was we weren't even regarded as nerds. We were actually not even very good at school. We were mostly mechanics. And so we spent all of our time in our garages building cars and four-wheel drives and all this stuff. And I was so passionate about building stuff and and kind of making things work better. And so that became my passion and decided by the time I was forced to decide to go to college by society's social structure, I think I probably would have put that off if there hadn't been the, the, the social pressure because I was having so much fun. I loved my my 16 through 20 ages of like just building and we were racing and we were doing all the fun, fun stuff. Mm. But I, I went through a bit of a crisis of, you know, re- heartbreak first girlfriend when I was a senior in high school and you can only be that dramatic as a senior in high school I think to think (laughs) that oh my heart's totally broken and all of this but I went on to uh, decide I needed to take a year off from college and I had been heading towards engineering and robotics because I knew how to build things and a couple minutes after deciding that to take a year off uh, an aunt called from the Philippines and said hey we need some help in the Philippines delivering babies would you be willing to come help and I was like holy cow I just decided to take some time off so I worked in a tire shop for six months making money to make that trip happen and got over to the Philippines and completely changed my whole life uh, the first time I saw a baby born in the squats of the Philippines. It just was the first time I'd seen a spiritual event happen in a physical body. Wow. It changed everything. It, it, nothing I had ever learned before seemed relevant after that. And the idea of going back into robotics seemed completely you know, lifeless compared to what I had seen these these babies doing. And these are babies being born in malnutrition and you know, m- most of them dying very early in age, if not within hours of birth, um, but struggling to, to for life. And one of the big lessons I found out of that is that at the most fabric level of what humanity is, we have this potent drive for life mm-hmm. and we don't, we won't let go of it. Like it doesn't matter how hopeless the financial situation is or the social impossibilities of survival are or the physical stressors that are coming at us. There is this innate drive for life that is in somehow the fabric of a cell. And fast forward a couple decades later, looking under microscopes at cancer cells, which are the most damaged cells in the body, they have this irrepressible drive for life and they don't even know why. You know, I think there's just this like sense of we got to survive. And so while we're at this tipping point in human history where we can literally look at our own extinction uh, with some objective numbers coming up in the you know in less than a hundred years, 
it's really interesting to think of what are we going to do when we're faced with mass extinction? What are we going to do when, when life starts to disappear on the planet? And I think we're going to rise. We are going to rise to reflect these babies being born mm-hmm. in the most depressed situations you could imagine with this verve for life, uh, that these kids, by the time they're two or three, are running around with giant smiles on their face, with joy in their hearts, and they have no idea that they're impoverished. I can really touch that. Like growing up relatively poor and everything else, I had no idea. Like you're just a happy kid and and you love life and you don't you don't care what you look like. You don't know what you look like. You're just having so much fun with your your people. Mm-hmm. And so your couple friends are giving you just this deep sense of joy. And I, I yearn for that for humanity. Like wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have childlike joy of just like the few of us sitting in this room right now of like, if I could really see each of you for who you are, we would all burst out in tears with joy just because it's so beautiful. It's so Mm. awesome that you guys are each alive and that we have the capacity to be together, seven and a half billion people on the planet. And this is the room we end up in today. Mm -hmm. That's precious. That's amazing. That's incredible. I don't think a lot of people would expect that sort of spiritual perspective from a doctor of deep science. And it's kind of amazing to me when I hear you talk about things like this, that this path, almost it seems to me like a path to humanity, your experience watching babies be born is what led you to this path of medicine. And that really they're meant to support each other. But so often I think we we separate I think you're right. I think the, the there's a bit of a brainwashing effect of education period. I think mm-hmm. that education, the way that we've designed it in Western nations, takes the creative and spiritual component out. And uh, we're left with a very linear thought process. And that's neither helpful for the evolution of our consciousness or our, our daily survival, really. And so I'm intrigued to see what we do with our educational systems when the current paradigm is in such blatant collapse that we can't can no longer ignore it. Yeah. What was it that made you decide to go to medical school to flip the idea of education for you from engineering? You know, you have this experience in the Philippines, and then what happens? Do you have to come home and sort of start over at, at the university level? I had to start over, yeah, I, and I didn't really want to be a doctor at all because I never associated myself as a good student. My sister was kind of the brains of the family, and and so I'd always kind of grown up under the shadow of her phenomenal grades, and, you know, she just seemed to just ace everything she touched, and I always kind of struggled to be a B-plus student and and so I, I just didn't see myself as academic. And so I thought a doctor was totally out of reach and then started in thinking I could maybe be a nurse or shortly thereafter I found out about this thing called a nurse practitioner, which because at that time in the early 90s was a totally new field kind of coming on. So I was like, oh, maybe I could be a nurse practitioner and, and kind of work my way in there. And I was working in a landscaping company throughout college to kind of pay my way through and I was fixing a sprinkler main. I was about six feet deep in a hole that me and my buddy had dug and we were literally head to toe in mud. And he was a paramedic and I was an EMT at the time. And he said, you should just 
go ahead and just be a doctor. It's only like one more year past being a nurse practitioner or something, and you should just do that. Turns out he had no idea what it meant to educate as a doctor, neither did I. So I thought, well, one more year didn't sound bad. In the end, I spent 17 extra years in <laughs> in higher education that I didn't see coming. So it turned out to be a very long pathway. But it, I think it was this extraordinary experience of seeing babies born then getting into this heady belief that Western medicine hands us that we could fix everything. And I loved fixing things. And so that mechanic kind of part of me was really checked all the boxes of I could actually fix blood pressure and I could fix blood sugar. And as soon as I started medical school, which took me a while, I didn't get into medical school the first year I applied, got in the second year. And in my just first weeks of of medicine, the education system was much different than anything I'd ever seen before. It was systems thinking instead of these compartmentalized approaches. And my brain turned out did really, really well in systems thinking. And I started to be able to put together a three-dimensional picture of life and what, what it meant. And there was lots of experience in the Philippines that fed into that early experience that I think put me way ahead of my colleagues who hadn't had that opportunity to actually see birth and life before they started doing all the memorization. And so I think I had that spiritual touch of of, of watching life emerge uh, from you know, object poverty and, and desperate things. And that memory of that shaped, shaped me as a doctor early on. But I, I did get completely brainwashed by, by the time it was like 2006, 7. At this point, I'd finished subspecialties in internal medicine and endocrinology and metabolism. And in my field of endocrinology metabolism, which studies hormones and the way in which we produce fuel in our bodies, the Mm -hmm. metabolism part, I got into cancer research. And in that journey, I was starting to develop chemotherapy uh, from from novel compounds derived from vitamin A and and some of these nutritional compounds. And that would ultimately be the slippery slope towards nutrition for me. I was Mm -hmm. taught no nutrition in in medical school, we had one short course that basically taught us the food pyramid, which is useless, and and we moved on. But uh, th- that journey into under the microscope and my journey through hospital care um, as an internal medicine doc, you you oversee hospitals, and I spent so many hours in ICUs. You know, I was working. Yeah, I topped out at about 120 hours a week at the at the peak of my training. Mm. And so when you're in a hospital 120 hours a week and you're surrounded by dying people constantly, it's an opportunity to again transform. That same experience I had watching a child be born was happening in these last few minutes of life. And so watching people die completely changed my perspective on my spirituality. I grew up in a really cool kind of Christian church, Boulder, Colorado, kind of checked all the boxes of relatively open-minded, but got a really good fundamental education through my church of religious history, spiritual history, of humanity and all of that. And it started to break apart, like the box that I had created, my my God view in and my, my personal worldview and started to shatter apart in the ICUs, sitting with patients of mm-hmm. all different walks of life, atheists to Southern Baptist preachers, dying and then being resuscitated and hearing on the other side of that veil that they were all getting the same treatment on the other side. They were all welcomed into this space where mm-hmm. they were fully accepted and and they felt this radiant love, you know, permeating their being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they I'd pound on their chest and pump drugs into them and they'd come back into the body and, and report this. And 
with enough of that iterations, it started to challenge what I was seeing under the microscopes of cellular structure to say, what's behind all of that? You know, there's this 0.001% of the world that we live in, which is solid. The 99.999% of our reality is vacuum space. And that's based on the, the structure of an atom, which is all vacuum and then 0.001% solid. And so our fabric is vacuum. And that vacuum is not empty. It's actually full uh, to, the, to the fullest degree of the word full. Like it is packed with life in this thing that we call the electromagnetic field or resonance or light. And so the fact that we are literally light beings is pretty fascinating and it, and it should quickly inform us that our what do we think are the priorities or the stressors in our life today are very physical and uh, are missing the mark severely on our opportunity to understand who we are and where we're going. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's, I'm just sitting with that for a moment. Thank you. What a wild thing to be reminded of, to your point, a spiritual idea by science. We're right there. That's the exciting thing about, I'm just so freaking grateful to be alive right now. I, I can't believe mm-hmm. that I got out of 200,000 years of Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. I got to show up right now and I got to be witness to this explosion of awareness. And I think that's where we're at right now. We have human awareness on a level we've never had it. And now we have an opportunity to apply that to consciousness. Mm-hmm. And awareness is not the same as consciousness. And I, I think every day I'm more aware of that. You know, No matter how many statistics I know or no matter how much data I cram in my head, that will never equal consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make this, we have to let go of awareness, which has been a great expansion of our, our reality. And we need to welcome in consciousness, which takes on a fifth or 17th dimension kind of characteristic. It means that, in awareness, you're simply an observer of much activity. In consciousness, you, I think we have the cop- capability to become a co-creator. And mm-hmm. I think we are being called into our spiritual potential to co-create life in a much more profound way than being a passive portal for babies coming through our birth canals. Mm-hmm. 54% of births or something like that is are unintentional. Like We're like unintentionally <laughs> participating in life right now with our procreation. And with the rest of our activities, we suck life out of this planet to its own detriment and to its own extinction. And so obviously what, everything we've learned, all of our technology, all of our products are not moving us towards life. It's moving us away from life. We've seen a 52% drop in sperm counts in Western countries, some of them as high as 58% in just the last, just my short lifetime. You know. And so it, we're on track to hit 85% of males infertile in the next 30 or 40 years. Wow. And if we do that... You know, we, we will see the collapse of our, our species for sure, and then we'll be on track to go extinct in the next 70, 80 years if we don't make this critical shift from awareness to consciousness. And if we're going to do that, everything's going to look different. Our relationships will obviously look much, much different if we go into this without some fairy tale belief that, oh, we're going to, you know, just everything's going to, we'll have the big house and we'll have the kids and we'll have the cars and we'll have this stuff and we'll, they'll go to great colleges and all that. Instead, 
deprogram all those children that are coming out right now and say, what would it look like if you could be a spiritual co-creative being with the universe and you are a light being? And, you know, Einstein and everyone since then have shown us that a light light can either be a wave, which is what fills the electromagnetic field uh, or the vacuum space, or it can be a particle. And it can be that simultaneously, which is very weird. And so what's happening when a child is born is a light being, a wave form that is tuned to its specific wavelength of self-identity is suddenly coming into a particle moment. And in a particle moment, you, you have different properties. You can, you can change matter around you in different ways. And so all this talk on social media and coaches and energy guides and everybody else that's kind of emerged in these recent decades mm. have popularized something called man, you know, manifestation. We have the power to manifest or you should set in your intention. If I could imbue your audience and listeners here with anything, it'd be just to, to tell you how literal that is. Like you, as a particle being, you've, you have this light energy fabric and you are in particle state, which means you can literally shift the matter around you. And that happens with a hug. That happens with a, a kind word. That, that happen, you can change physical structures around you. And we now have the science figuring out how that's done. And it's through the genome, which is so amazing. Our genes that are passed on from mom and dad and all of that, they seem, seemed so static to us historically. But they are extremely malleable. We are so plastic as a species. We are arguably the most plastic of species in regards to our genome. Only one and a half percent of our entire gene content within our body, which is a huge amount of information, only one and a half percent actually codes for a gene that will become a a solid protein that would go do work in your body to build you today. The other 98.5% of that genome is this plastic information that produces something called microRNA. And the microRNA actually can leave our bodies. It can leave in our sweat. It can leave in our breath. It can leave in our urine or stool. And, And so we're exuding this extraordinary amount of information about what we're experiencing and thinking right now. And by doing that, that microRNA goes into the bloodstream of other organisms or into bacteria or whatever it is, and it changes their genome. In the same way, we now know that the microRNA from the other outside of human is shaping us. And so some 35% of the microRNA in my bloodstream right this second is actually from the bacteria and fungi in my gut and sinuses, skin. And I'm being influenced and dictated in the body that I build today by those microorganisms. So... A bacteria is literally in its particle moment capable of changing the body I build today. How much more so would a 70 trillion celled human organism be able to change its environment? And that's not just build a different house, it's literally build a different body. The genome that we now have understanding of could build 4 million different bodies out of the genes you have in, sitting there right now. And so if you feel stuck in your body, if you feel like you're chronically ill or you're, you feel like you're depressed or whatever it is, you have the opportunity to build 4 million di- different versions of yourself. And you do that by interacting with the particle state of being alive differently. And it can start with, who are you really? You are not your name. You are not, you're, you're an ancient waveform. You are an ancient life, light creature, if you will that has now come into a particle moment that we're calling human. But that's just a, a figure of, of lexicon at this point. Literally, we are these white light beings 
that are having this particle moment that are influencing all life on Earth. Something I find so fascinating about the way that you talk about the universe and the way that it co-creates and, and how that's, these big spiritual ideas are supported by the science that you're talking about. You know, we're talking about genomes and hormones and methylation and uh, neurons and atoms. How do you start making these big connections that you speak so eloquently about today when you're in, as you said, 17 years of medical school? Because you, you studied three different would it be? Would they be considered yeah. subspecialties? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you know there's a constant conflict between the physical knowledge base and the spiritual experience. You know, mm -hmm. and so at some point, those if those resolve themselves, then I think we would get ourselves to a hyperintelligence. You know, mm -hmm. if we could resolve the belief that somehow the physical data around us is different than the spiritual experience that mm -hmm. that's within that or behind that, or intentioning all of that. That's when there's the shift to, to, from awareness to consciousness will likely happen, it seems. And so I'm intrigued that science is definitely maturing to the point where I can see past the atomic structure. We've been so married to the physical belief in all of this of there's a, a cell that's powered by you know, mitochondria and there's fuel for that and there's biochemistry involved and then there is atomic physics and we all agree on that. And so there's atoms and atoms can group together to make all of these different things on the periodic chart. So we have minerals and metals and all of this stuff. And we're so, science has been so stuck in that physical realm. But as we start to divide atoms down and we start bursting them apart, apart through the Hadron Collider and things like this and now we've found that boson particle that everybody called the God particle and everything else. Like, literally, the scientists are now using the word God to define the boson particle. So, yeah, wow. I'm intrigued by the fact that we're seeing a merging, and it didn't. We didn't merge God and science until we let go of the belief of the physical state, and so that's, I think, where we're at right now. And so, in your life, you know, if you're listening right now. There's some dominant experiences that are shaping your day. Those might be the state of hunger or the state of pain. They might be the state of disappointment or exhaustion or whatever these physical stimuli that are shaping you. If you, for a moment you could just close your eyes and just take three or four deep, long breaths and realize that there's a whole world within you that is beyond those physical stimuli that are not dictated or limited or in any way affected by those physical experiences. And then in that silence between the breaths, there's an opportunity to find a, a different self than anybody's told you you could have. And that's what I'm in a daily effort to do is to keep letting go of whatever definitions of myself, the world, and I myself are tempted to, to hold on to. Mm. You know, we are, a, I, was, I was a son and then I was, you know, a, third baseman on t-ball team and then I was you know you can think, think of all the things that people have labeled you with as an identity and and then I was a mechanic and then I was a doctor and then I was blah 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 all of these things have the risk of freezing me in space and time and my capacity to expand as a human being mm -hmm. or as a sentient being as a light being as I, it may happen and the and so it's it, a very important step in the maturation of humanity for us to stop telling our children 
what they are, what role they're playing, or what identity, and start to just acknowledge you are this powerful being that stepped into this moment to do something fantastic on this planet, to co-create within the universe, and do something really important right now to change the perception of humanity, because we're marching to our own demise, we're extincting the planet as we know it. And so what what are we going to do to stop labeling the kids and what are we going to how are we going to start to redefine a child and and give that a new name and would you say cuz i can't help but draw a parallel as i hear you talk about the label and the system and how those things are actually marching us in the wrong direction and i think about your work uh you know when you talk about oncology your work in cancer research, which led you to develop, as you mentioned earlier, chemotherapy treatments. And I've read about how frustrating that was for you because you realized you were treating the symptom, you were treating the cancer, you weren't treating the cause. And that that, I would imagine, is a big aha moment in the practice of medicine, which led you to then look at roots of disease, open your own clinic. Do you think that that is a is a sort of root of this sort of big thought, you know, what was happening at that moment? What's it like to do cancer research and develop chemotherapy in the first place? And, and what did it show you about the system? The journey into being an expert in one little thing is a pretty heady experience. Mm-hmm. Like it, it really pumps the human ego to a huge degree. By the time I was, you know, developing my chemotherapy and a couple years in applying to NIH grants and stuff for support, there was only six other people on the planet that understood the protein that I was working on at the level that I understood it. And there was probably only 50 people in the world that had ever heard of the protein I was working on. And, And so they actually, when I went to really present some of my cutting edge research, I had to be flown to Japan for an international conference on the pathways that I was talking about and there was only 50 other people you know from the world that showed up you know and so it's that that gives you a sense of like oh my gosh I must be just such an amazing mind and person to be able to get to that level of expertise and I think that the world offers us that opportunity through a, a thousand different pathways you could become the very best actress, which is what I hope for my daughter, (laughs) you could become the very best, you know, whatever it is. And then we realize when you get to that pinnacle moment that, you know, at that point of being at the pinnacle moment of knowing all this stuff, I I wasn't happy as a human being. I didn't know myself. I didn't know my patients. I wasn't having a deep experience as I wished to have uh, with the world, I think. And so loneliness is actually bred out of that ever-focusing effort towards expertise and, and a narrowing of your perspective. And wouldn't that be obvious? The more narrow your perspective and your if your worldview has come down to your important because you know one protein in the mix of billions of proteins on the planet and all of this, then there's no way you can see the forest for the trees at that point. So the, I think there's been a huge danger of subspecialization and only having three subspecialties. Can I say that maybe? But my third subspecialty after... That was a refreshing breath of fresh air after the cancer world because I did hospice and palliative care. Mm. And diving into the death and dying process was a really important exit for me from from Western medicine. Uh, It really confirmed everything that I had gotten glimpses of in the ICUs Mm. to tell me that there was this whole other universe out there. And it was very akin to the moment of going to the Philippines and moving from robotics to 
babies as this kind of paradigm shifting concept of the potential for understanding a system and the complexity of systems. And then you go from that physical state of a dying body to this expansive, you know, s- state of a light being that's obviously traveling through galaxies and universes and then come back to tell us about that. And there's so much potential there. And I don't trust or expect that in my in my physical state that I'm going to ever have the ability to fully understand that next paradigm of, of consciousness that comes beyond the physical moment. But I know that what we're doing right now as a, as a species, the fact that you all are even listening to this is indicative that there is a hunger at the soul level mm-hmm. for a change. Yeah. And the change is not a, some sort of linear stepwise improvement. It's not a, a cell phone that goes slightly faster in its processor. It's not video conferencing that looks a little better next year. We want seismic change in the human state. And we want an explosion of the old paradigm. And that's at the at the subconscious level. Consciously, I think we're still locked in this pursuit of the next paycheck and the next thing and the next you know purchase we're going to make or whatever it is. And the consumer lifestyle that we live in is so such a trap in and of itself, obviously. Mm. So how do we get out? And I hope to bring this back to some sort of state where you can be like, I th- that was at least one thing we intended to talk about. <laughs> and that might be food. And so the mm. one really real thing that we do every day is food. Mm-hmm. And so in a consumer lifestyle, none of the stuff we buy outside of food is actually real. It's not life. It's actually an extraction of life. We've extracted life to buy a purse or to buy mm-hmm. shoes or to buy a, a T-shirt. We're extracting energy and life from the planet right now as a consumer, except in food, which is killing the planet faster than anything, but it's the one thing that's alive. And it's the one thing that could be alive in a different way. So it's the one way that as consumers, we could actually participate in life would be a change in behavior, change in relationship to our food system. And a brilliant gentleman and his wife came from Greece recently uh, to be at one of the events that I was at. And they prepared this five-course Greek meal for the speakers. And so it was like 17 of us, and we had this meal. And the woman was describing each course and how she had forged for four days in Virginia to find the ingredients and put together each each ingredient so specially. There was one course that was just an onion that was prepared alone. It was a baked onion, basically. And I had never tasted anything like it. Melt in mm. your mouth, ridiculous explosion of flavors. And love, like she had baked so much love and she explained the love that she was preparing this onion with. And all of us were in tears at different points in the meal and everything else. And I got up at the end to just toast them and and give gratitude and said what I thought was a profound thing about bacteria and our, our gut and our relationship to the digestion of this food and our spirituality and all of this. And uh, the gentleman stood up and said, no, you're all wrong. He said, in Ikaria, Greece, where we come from, which is one of the blue zones on the planet where so many of them live over 100 years, Mm. he said, the purpose of food we know in Ikaria is not uh, the food itself. So much so that we would never ask in Ikaria, Greece, what did you eat last night? But instead, we always ask in the morning, who did you eat dinner with last night? Mm. Because the food in Ikaria is supposed to be the, the... the thing that would bring humans together Mm -hmm. to have a spiritual experience together. Mm -hmm. And so in this really cool fashion, as we talk about perhaps in the next few minutes of the horrific state of our current food system Mm -hmm. 
it becomes obvious why we're not having spiritual connection. Why are we not having human conscious connection? It's because we forgot that the food was for that. And we started yeah. eating food as a drug. We started eating food as, to, as an emotional experience to satiate broken emotions or our disappointments. And so we have this drug relationship to a food system and the food system itself has separated itself from nature. And so even the even the corn in the center of a 10,000 miles of a monoculture of corn yeah. is lonely. It, it's lost its purpose because what's the purpose in the face of 10 million other corn plants or 10 billion other corn, you know, stocks? It's just... It, you realize that we are failing spiritually because we forgot our natus to the universe was the food. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it strikes me, two summers ago, I, I got to go to Italy and my family's from Northern Italy. And I was driving through this really small farming community and there was an entire enormous field of dead sunflowers. And they were turning over the soil So the year before, that field had grown crops, and then they seeded it with sunflowers and allowed them to grow these huge, beautiful stalks, and then to just die. This massive field of flowers just dying to decay, to put all of those nutrients back into the soil and to eventually till that soil with all of that dead plant matter to, you know, liven it up again. And then the next year, that field would be planted with crops again. And I thought, I've never seen that in the U.S. I've never driven through any farm country here and seen fields of dying flowers so that we care for our soil. And I think about big ag. I think about 10,000 cubic meter, whatever it is, of corn growing year after year on soil that year after year is more and more depleted And I think about how many of us can eat and not feel satiated, have a meal and weirdly still feel hungry. I know for me, I I can't get enough salt ever, ever. doesn't matter. I just want to put salt on everything. And there's some mineral issue. There's something going on when we have these illogical cravings when our bodies don't need things or maybe need things we're not giving them or to your point maybe people are having cravings because of of emotional stuff you know um and we're really separated from our relationship to food and from where it even comes from and again like we were talking about earlier i think most of us assume that someone's in charge and that someone's making sure that we're doing this right but it's so clear and I'm so grateful to doctors like you and scientists who are speaking out about these things that no one's making sure that these systems are okay. You know, we have chemicals, you mentioned Monsanto, leaching into our soil, into our water systems. This current administration is making it more legal for terrible companies to dump toxic and carcinogenic chemicals into the water supply, which just seems crazy to me. These, these shouldn't be party debates. There should just be standards by which we don't treat ourselves and the planet from which we live. We shouldn't be polluting our water. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. That's just an insane thing to do. That's like, to me, I think, who wants to take small doses of poison every day to like stick it to the libs? (laughs) I don't, I don't understand why we're doing this. So when I, when I look at the size of what's scary in these systems. 
I guess I want to ask you as an expert, maybe firstly, if we rewind a little bit, how palliative care brought you to food. And then when you look at food, what do we do? Because it can feel, and I'm sure for some of the listeners, it's like you might be having that moment of panic of this is a very big system that's very broken and what can I as one person do to fix it? But what can you tell us about how we begin to fix these things? Very good. So the march out of hospice and palliative care came at the same time that I started my nutrition center. So I exited the university in 2010 and uh, started a nutrition center in one of the poorest counties in Virginia, thinking that I would like to find a way to explore lifestyle and nutrition education such that the poorest among us could could do that mm-hmm. and transform their codependence on the pharmaceutical industry that I had been such a part of. Mm. And I wanted to see freedom from that, and I wanted to see better efficacy. Our our cancer chemotherapies are miserably ineffective. You know, mm-hmm. To get approved as a chemotherapy, you have to show about a 15% improvement in, in, in survival. And so 85% of people aren't dying no matter what you give. So That's there's such terrible. a low bar to improving you know, outcomes. And keep in mind that the placebo effect is always around 30% efficacy. And so we chose a barb at half that of a placebo to say, yeah, you can be approved as a chemotherapy. Tellingly, Amgen, one of the big, you know, private pharmaceutical companies that was emerging in the 1990s, recently redid the science of uh, 53 different landmark chemotherapy trials that shaped what chemotherapy is today. And of those, they could only find six that were reproducible results. And so 85% or 87% of the cancer studies that were published to to shape today's chemotherapy behavior were wrong. They just, they they used, you know, fake statistics or they, they manipulated the data or whatever it is. And we're able to come out with these, you know, seemingly efficacious drugs that are completely unreproducible by a third party. And so I'm intrigued by the opportunity then to take a person and say, okay, we have all this chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, cancer is now one in two adults in the male and about one one in three or a little less in females. And so we have this massive burden of cancer and the only offerings are things that are relatively ineffective. At best, they extend the disease-specific survival, but they don't actually fix any underlying problem for the person. And so all of this mix... And then the experience of hospice and palliative care, which is awesome experience because as a doctor for the first time in my career, my job was to stop medicines. And so you know, when somebody's admitted to hospice, you immediately stop all of their medications, you stop their statin drugs for their heart disease, and you stop their antidepressants. You stop everything to figure out what's, what's going to make them do the best today instead of palliating for some long-term outcome. And Amazingly, we have to discharge a lot of hospice patients from hospice because they get better as soon as we stop the pharmaceutical drugs. And so they're not going to die in six months as long as you stop their drugs. And so that, again, was just a reinforcement of the system's broken. We keep believing in chemo and all these other drugs to the point that we're actually dying early from all of the drugs. And we don't know that because we stop believing in the placebo effect. We stop believing that we can heal without anything. We stop believing in our power to co-create with life and actually just heal because we believe we can heal. That's what the placebo is. It is a belief that you can heal. Mm. And it is powerful. It can you know, have this massive impact on the course of disease in life. And so for all of that, it takes us down to is the food 
well or not? And the answer is no. The same companies that created the pharmaceutical dependence of medicine are the same companies that created chemical farming. And so, you know, the the before Bayer, which is the largest pharmaceutical company in in Europe, bought Monsanto, U.S. pharmaceutical companies own that company. So, yeah, the mm. chemical companies that are shaping our food system and our chemical industries of plastics and consumer products are are shaping medicine as well. And it's scary when those companies are now controlling both ends of that pattern because we know that something like Roundup, made by Monsanto originally and now owned by Bayer, Roundup deletes the medicine out of the food. We've known for thousands of years that the food is thy medicine. Well, it actually blocks the enzyme pathway that allows the food to make the medicines. And these alkaloid medicines that can no longer be made, we now extract out of a pharmaceutical process, out of plants and things, and sell it back to the consumer. And so it's just this frightening thing that we're allowing the same company to own both sides of that equation, Mm -hmm. to own the nutrient or the lack of nutrient delivery through our food system and the medicines that would be selling those nutrients back to us. And uh, so we've got to take a bigger look at the thing that we call monopoly, the way Mm -hmm. that people are, that that Bayer was allowed to buy Monsanto is, you know, defies all logic in blocking monopolies. I mean, the monopoly seems illogical to me, but it also seems to defy logic in my observation that we know these chemicals are killing us and they're still allowed to be manufactured. I find it insane that they're allowed to manufacture Roundup. I find it insane that people are allowed to manufacture styrofoam. I mean, in in so many of these arenas, we see chemical products being made that are damaging to human life and the planet on which we live. And no one's saying, just stop. And I'm curious about that because... To your point, as science is evolving, as we're understanding the impacts of agriculture, as we're understanding the impacts of ingesting chemicals like these on our bodies, what they're doing to our microbiome, the microbiome being the gut, which is, in fact, as as you've helped to educate people about, that's actually the brain of our body. That The gut gives us more information by, by a multiplier than, than the brain ever will. It's where our serotonin is made. It's where our mood is regulated. It's so many things. And none of us really know how to take care of it, let alone that it's being assaulted by the food that we eat and the chemicals that these companies are putting into our food supply and our medical supply. So what what would you say for people who are listening? What do people need to know about the microbiome, about how to take care of the gut? And then what can each of us do to begin advocating for a better food system? Totally. Yeah, so the the microbiome, like life that we talked about earlier, that maybe life is re, results in biodiversity and biodiversity results in more life. That's the same for the microbiome. And so the more diverse mm-hmm. your microbiome is, the more life you have. Mm-hmm. Literally, the more nutrients are produced, the more fascinating detoxification happens. It's literally a hyper-intelligent system. And the human gut is now... And the, the microbiome in the human is now understood to be far beyond the gut. Our skin is a massive source. Our sinuses, our lungs, our uh, every internal organ now, the breast, for example, has an extraordinary organic garden within it in an ideal situation. So the healthy human breast has this diverse microflora. 
if the breath starts to get stressed and, and starts to get acidic and, and chronic, you know, kind of toxicity builds up in the breast, the microbiome actually adjusts to try to detox that thing. And if we keep killing the microorganism, then the woman dies of her breast cancer. And so every organ now is recognized to have this teeming life within it. And if we screw with the teeming life and its biodiversity, we lose wellness, we lose longevity, and we lose reproductivity, and we, we go extinct. And so in the microbiome, all of your body, within your body, outside your body, is this extension of life and perhaps the very source of life within the human experience. You can picture the, the microbiome of the human just like you would a verdant, deep soil of in a garden, you know, and so there's this, you know, whole fad, of course, towards organics. And so the idea of an organic garden or permaculture, if you want to go extreme or biodynamic farming, all these things, the whole focus is getting this biodiversity back in the soil. We need to look at our guts the same way. The probiotic industry has done a great harm in that it keeps handing us a monoculture of three species and says, says take this, you'll, this is your gut health tool. The, the human gut alone is supposed to have 30,000 species in it. Mm -hmm. So if we keep taking three species at 50 billion copies a day, we're going to create a monoculture just like the soy, corn, and, and wheat monoculture that we have mm -hmm. at the macro level. We're creating that same microorganism monoculture with probiotics. Recent studies that were published in Cell, one of the most respected peer-reviewed journal science articles last year, was extraordinary in demonstrating that probiotic use after an antibiotic has the same suppressive effect on biodiversity as the antibiotic did. Antibiotic can wipe out 80% of the biodiversity. If you put the mice on a probiotic, they freeze at that, that same level of destroyed ecosystem, which makes total sense. If you're taking up all the soil with those three organisms, there's not room for for the life to come back abundantly in diversity. And the human study that was published at the same time showed that six months after an antibiotic exposure, the humans still hadn't recovered their microbiome wow. uh, on a probiotic. Whereas if they did nothing, let's return to the concept of a placebo, they were better in 30 days. They had completely redeveloped their, their microbiome. So what does that tell us about your, your question, which is what can each of us do to get a rich microbiome? The secret is to get into nature. And so the more you mm. breathe nature, the more you touch nature, the more you hug trees, the more that you, you hug your, your animals, especially dogs are so good at going out and digging out back and then mm -hmm. coming, bringing that microbiome of the humus soil into the home again. Our homes are inherently devoid of, of microbiome and, and mm. we get these very narrow probiotic effects of our house or our car. These plastic off-gassing environments are not good at creating biodiversity. They can't support it. And so the soil and the nature and all of that is the big step in. If you can go beyond just getting outside and touching nature and actually start to co-create in the growth mode, you really do yourself a favor. So grow a garden. If you don't have any room to grow a garden, grow a mint plant in the window. Mint is like indestructible. You might think you're a brown thumb or a black <laughs> thumb. Grow a mint plant and you'll feel really good about yourself because those things grow like crazy and they're really hard to kill. So mint and and eat that a leaf off of that mint plant every day to remind yourself, I'm part of a co-creative process of nature. I need to go get the, more in touch with this. And so then go find a CSA, find a farmer's market, meet the farmers at the farmer's market. Have you really asked about the farmer? I, I, I'm always amazed at the farmer's market where the conversation pretty much stops at, do you spray or do you this or whatever? Instead of like, who are you? Where do, where do you come from? Has your family been with that piece of farm for generations or did you just buy it out of a passion to do this? Or, mm. oh my gosh, you've, you're just passionate about the land and mm. what draws you to that? Are your children involved? Like, 
those are the questions that I think would spur and encourage farmers because farmers are tired of feeling like they're the bad guy. They're tired of feeling like they're part of the problem. They really want to be part of the solution and they are brilliant problem solvers. They are brilliant, inventive people that want to engage. And as consumers, we should want to engage with them because Mm -hmm. again, just like the the couple from Icaria Greece reminding us that the food isn't food. It's an opportunity for a spiritual experience and and fellowship to happen between two human beings. What cooler could happen than you and your child sitting in the backyard picking a tomato off your tomato plant and talking about life and birth and mm-hmm. all of this vitality of Mother Earth and how it just comes out? Isn't that amazing? A tomato can, why is a tomato that red? Like, how the heck did the tomato become red? It's coming out of brown dirt. What's that? What's going on with that? What's, why is the plant green? Mm-hmm. What is photosynthesis? Where does energy come from? Oh, it comes from the sun. Sun is not a physical structure. It's a light being. The sun is this huge source of radiation energy that's expanding out in the universe. And we can turn a green plant from that. And then we can turn a red tomato from that. Like these are miracles right in front of our eyes that we're missing. Yeah. Children should not think about macaroni and cheese. That is, there's nothing of nature in a macaroni and cheese. You know? And so we've so dumbed down the experience of food for children mm. that us as a third or fourth, fifth generation of people separated from the farm have lost altogether. Well, and something that frightens me, you've studied uh, glyphosate, which is the herbicide that we're referencing in Monsanto. And we know that it's a carcinogen. And earlier this year, which I I discovered thanks to your work, um, there was a study that came out that said that 21 oat-based cereals, out of 21 tested, 17 of them tested positive for glyphosate at levels that are considered unsafe for children. And that includes multiple brands of Cheerios. And to your point, there's no nature in macaroni and there's no nature in a Cheerio, but most of us grew up eating them. What do we do about this? Because you're right. Some of us can grow gardens. I'm actually now growing a garden. Congratulations. Um, you, I'd love to have you guys over <laughs> to um, have some some treats. But for people who can't, I love the idea of saying even if you have a small space, grow a mint plant, grow a couple of herbs, something. You know, maybe for folks who are listening from, you know, New York or any other very metropolitan city, get a tree, like some sort of indoor potted tree. But not everybody can have a, you know, a, a personal farm at home. I think about my friends, Becca and Eduardo, who have a, an acre and a half garden in Montana and grow all their own food. Like, that's my dream, but that's not my reality. So what do, what do most of us do? What do we need to be looking at? What kinds of dietary changes might you recommend? Because I also heard you say in an interview that if your body is sick, you know, if your gut is unhealthy, even kale can be hard for you to process. So what do we do with with all this information? Because it feels to me, I, I, I get panicky because I feel like everything is scary and I don't know what to eat. So I wind up just like eating the same things that I've always been eating, which might not be the answer either. Yeah, I think that um, paralysis is a common result of fear Mm -hmm. and fear comes from not enough information or opportunities or Mm -hmm. or decision points and so when we feel like we have no choice in what we eat that definitely creates the fear and then creates the paralysis of belief 
And so, again, I think it comes back to human relationship. What do you really need? You need more than you need a, a backyard garden. You need to have a relationship. Who do you need a relationship with? A farmer. And mm-hmm. so that might be your your community garden is a phenomenal way. So community gardens mm-hmm. are sprouting up all over the country. One of our close collaborators with our nonprofit, which is Farmer's Footprint, uh, he goes by Farmer D. He's just a phenomenally fun guy to hang out with, but he's building some of the largest I guess you'd call them municipal planning things that are happening in the country, but they're called agrihoods, which I think is so exciting. And so there's a massive one of 300,000 acres outside of Orlando. There's a massive one in Ohio that he just completed plans on. And these are massive, you know, municipalities that are built around central farms and central agricultural systems. Mm-hmm. I think that is the future where we're heading. And I think that as consumers, we can start to demand that of like this empty lot down the street. We need this, we need the community to buy that and we need to turn that into a community garden. One thing you mentioned, Italy and your background there, it's striking. When my wife and I were in Italy this past year, when you're on the train uh, from Florence into into Tuscany there, and you're just out in the wilderness. Whenever there's you know a clump of houses together, and they they row these together with just barely enough room to walk between them, there's tomatoes planted between them. Like mm. every single inch of land that people have access to, they're going to plant something. We lost that mentality somewhere between 1945, which we did in this country at that time, to today. And so we need to get more in the mentality of like, oh, you don't think you can have a garden, but there's a square of soil outside of your apartment building. You should go talk to the tenant and say, hey, could we like grow like a tiny little community garden here, like a couple cabbage plants and a couple Mm -hmm. tomatoes and stuff like that, just to remind people, even if they can't eat Mm -hmm. from it, that food is real. And this could connect us all back to, you know, understanding of our relationship to food. There's exciting movements of urban gardening and there's exciting movements of gorilla gardeners who are putting vertical gardens on the side of dilapidated buildings and skyscrapers. and, um, And so... I think this is exciting. There's an opportunity for us to engage in that kind of creativity. And you say you just live in a tiny little home and you don't have access to soil. These vertical gardens create a a large growing space. In a four-foot-by-four-foot area, you can grow enough to grow all the produce for a a three-person family. And so four feet by four feet is actually a really tiny piece. And you'll find yourself having to throw away food because you can't even eat it fast enough. And so it takes very little soil to be very, very productive. And, And so I think that we need to lose the belief that this is difficult. And then also engage in it with excitement in that if it's not my job right now to be growing food, then it's my job to support somebody who is growing food. Mm. And that, again, is is not a failure. That's an opportunity. And so if you're feeling like, nope, everything that you just mentioned, I cannot do because I travel all the time and I do this or that and my job is this and my kids are under these stressors. That's okay. Uh, you now have the opportunity to be in a human relationship for food. Mm. And so that's that's where we need to move to is municipal sharing of resources. 40% of food in, in America is thrown away every day. And so nobody should be going hungry. We have plenty of food around. It's an issue of a lack of sharing and a lack of a, a sharing kind of uh, economy where we could get to. And so we see the likes of Burning Man being an example of what would society look like if it was based on the, on the idea of gifting and sharing? Mm-hmm. And so that's a little tiny microcosm of our potential. You know? When we talk about food waste, you know, because the idea, or the fact rather, that we have 40% food waste in America feels crazy. When, to your point, even in a state like Kansas, one in four kids is going to bed hungry every night. 
How do we as a citizenry advocate for better sharing of resources? Because I'm not throwing 40% of my food away, but the system is. So whether that's restaurants, grocery stores, all of the above, how do we call on our local governments to start changing that, to, to demand better practices, to, to redistribute the resources of food and, and accessibility to it? I'm not sure there's a political solution to that problem. I think there is definitely a consumer solution, though. And so if we look at that waste that you just mentioned, one is is serve only what you're going to eat, you know. And so I think a lot of homes mm-hmm. do waste 40% of their food because mm-hmm. they prepare a bunch of food and then, you know, they don't have time to, to get that into Tupperwares and they don't eat their leftovers or by the time they get to their leftovers, it's, it's rotting, mm-hmm. you know. And so we have an inefficiency in the home for sure. But at the bigger level, the restaurant industry is throwing out a ton of food, and it's because we've really asked the restaurant industry to develop and and deliver a product like we expect. Hmm. And so as consumers, it would be interesting for us to to start talking to our local restaurants about that problem and ask how we could support a change in that. And so instead of just going to order your favorite chicken dish every night at your restaurant, stop and ask, hey, can I talk to your manager and just drop a little seed in the manager's mind of, you know, I would love to like have a conversation with your owners to say like how how could we take advantage of that? And I understand there's going to be a cost to that. Like how could I participate that as a consumer of your restaurant? I love what you deliver to me, but how could I actually turn that into three meals instead of one? How could I help deliver that that extra food somewhere else and help mm. support the cost of that? And so these are the ways that we can start to really sh- reshape you know industry is become participant in the solutions rather than demanding solutions. Mm. Yeah, just invest a little bit of your energy and your time into asking the questions and and starting the conversation. And you may find out that all you had to do, the level of your own participation had to do with just starting the conversation. Yeah. You know, you may not even have to pay anything. You just had to start the conversation and let the owners know that we care about this, we're aware of this, and we would like to participate. Mm -hmm. And and then you find out that the owner just needed that little nudge in the ribs of like, oh, there's an opportunity to to do something different with our marketing. Like what as a restaurant, we said we have zero food waste because this is what we do with uh, the leftovers. We actually work with biodynamic farmers for anything that we can't give away. Mm -hmm. We actually are working on biodynamic farms to bring composting uh, to, to these systems to get chemical farming out of our communities. Mm. Another huge thing that we're working on that I think is on that political level going to be very successful is through our Farmers Footprint nonprofit, we've we've started a, a non-toxic neighborhoods toolkit, which has been very successful, started by Kim Conti. She was a empowered mom in Irvine, California, had raised her kids abroad. And then when she moved here, she was appalled that Roundup was being sprayed in our parks and on the school fields and everything else. And so she was spending all this money feeding her kids organic, and yet they were absorbing all this Roundup through their skin on the soccer field every afternoon. And so she advocated to get that uh, banned from the the whole city of Irvine successfully three years ago. And so that toolkit has now succeeded in, in 64 big counties now underway of banning Roundup from municipal spaces. And so that's a huge piece that you can do. So you can go to farmersfootprint.us and there's a toolkit in there. It has all the speaking points for your school board to get it out of your the playing fields and school grounds. You have uh, your city council and talking to them. And big counties are popping. L.A. popped uh, recently to ban uh, Roundup in municipal spaces, uh, Miami County and all of this. And so there's ways in which we can make government work for us, but I think it's always going to be at the local level, not at the federal mm-hmm. level. And so 
I think we need to give less credit and less airtime to Donald Trump and whoever comes after him. We need to give a lot more airtime to our governors mm -hmm. and to our local uh, uh, leaders who, who are making changes that are really profound and important progress mm -hmm. so that we stop giving up hope. You know, yeah. And one of these examples is the incredible governor of Pennsylvania right now. He just passed the very first state farm bill. And so we're working as a nonprofit to make a template out of that to break the back of the federal farm bill will change the farming industry. And so- What does that mean? What does a state so the, farm bill mean? So yeah, he created a- the, So the farm bill at the federal level subsidizes farmers to grow the wrong thing. Hmm. And so we pay farmers only if they will grow- GMO corn, soybean, alfalfa, and sugar beet. Sugar beet's the higher paid than anything else. So if you can't make money selling your crop, which you can't really in commodities cropping, because the especially since the tariffs have set in, we can't sell any of our corn. And so we we burned or destroyed like 300 million bushels of, of corn last year in the United States because we just couldn't sell it because the tariffs made it such that it was impossible to sell it on the international market. We always produce more food than we can consume in these commodities God, crops. Awful. And so we produced enough, you know, commodities to feed the whole world last year, but we didn't because of the way the trade works and everything else. And so in the end, we're paying farmers to grow the wrong thing. Our response this year, Trump's administration is actually paying, paying farmers more per bushel to grow more corn this year. So we couldn't mm -hmm. sell it. We burned it. We destroyed it. We sucked up all the nutrients out of the soil to produce all that. Now we're going to do even more this year. Wow. Because farmers know they can't make money selling crops, and so they just are going for the subsidies. So they're planting their farms. So what does a state farm bill have the opportunity to do? The the governor of, of Pennsylvania realized he had an opportunity to bump Oregon from the second largest organic grower in the country and uh, come second. And so as the third largest organic grower, he put in this bill that had $22 million of incentives to pay farmers to grow organic instead of GMO crops. Amazing. And with that small step in a single year, they bypassed Oregon and now are the number two wow. organic grower in the country. And that probably means that the soil in Pennsylvania is getting healthier as well, right? I hope so. I hope so. Unfortunately, organic practices, as dictated by the USDA, does nothing for soil. And so um, this is why we're making a big push of education through Farmers Footprint to help farmers understand how to go far beyond the organic label and actually become a regenerative farm. A regenerative mm. farm is the first step towards really starting to build life in the soil, build back microbial diversity, and you do that largely by creating macro diversity. So you mentioned the, the flowers growing in France or Italy that they do every year as a cover crop. What we're actually advocating for is a 16 species or 32 species cover crop. So you don't just have... 10 acres of, of, yeah. of flour, you've got thousands of acres of really diverse flora, which is going to bring in different butterflies and moss and bees and pollinators across the board, and it's going to bring in different microbes into the soil. So that's the beginning of it. The second step towards regeneration is to stop spraying, which the USDA does half the job of saying what you can't spray, but of course they can spray other things, and so there's all, all kinds of herbicides and pesticides in that mm -hmm. organic agriculture. But more than that, the problem with organic agriculture as it stands right now is when they can't spray to kill weeds and cover crops, they plow it. And when you overplow a piece of land, you do more damage or as much damage as the spraying. And so we've been killing our soils through an overplowing phenomenon. And so regenerative farming is showing this exciting reality that we can actually 5x and 10x the bottom line for farmers in a very short period of time, five years. We can make these farmers not only subsistent, but actually booming with wealth more than they have in generations by not touching the soil. And so it's just a reminder, such as the hospice would to the human, if you stop all the chemicals, life returns. 
and mm. life abundantly could happen. You could actually have more awareness as a human being without the drugs. You could actually have more vitality and longer life without the drugs. Same with the land. If you stop the chemical inputs, you can actually see vitality returning. And if you support that through a co-creative process of every year saying, I'm going to increase biodiversity here. I'm going to plant these seeds. I've never planted these seeds. I've never even heard of that plant. I'm going to do that. And, and so these farmers have this opportunity to just dive into complexity and biodiversity and then step back and see what nature does with that. And within years, you see megaflora coming back. And so you see uh, you know, trees and shrubs coming up on the boundaries of what had been wastelands before. You see then life returning. You see owls returning, hawks returning. You see them returning because the voles are back and the moles are back and the field mice are back. And life is starting to return to what was previously just a chemical desolation of, of space. And so it's very exciting that life abundant is is wealth producing. Mm. What we are seeing is this march of industrialization reaching its zenith and now collapsing. And now we're boosting up a collapsing economy of consumption and industrialization mm. by things like the stock market, which of and course is totally fake. Things. And then yeah, trade politics and all of this. And so and fighting wars, obviously. And so when we start running out of money, we just start another war somewhere in the in the world and extract more oil and more wealth and all of that. And we generate economy by the war machine all of this and so we we're boosting up a dying dying economy of of industrialization and consumption mm. and, and we can either die in that process or we could rebirth into a regenerative economy that actually sees that biodiversity is the core of that and mm. not only is that at the soil level it's obviously at the social level mm-hmm. if we keep building walls against the world outside of us we'll die as a nation our our empire is actively collapsing mm. and so the, the united states will cease to exist as as a you know one of those top economies over the next 20 years just under our, our the collapse of our health mm. and the cost thereof and so if we keep walling ourselves off from biodiversity and diversity of sociopolitical you know opportunity we're going to we're going to disappear but in just the same way that we see farmers who've killed their land over 18 years of spraying you know three or four times a year with roundup and then disking their soil into oblivion multiple times a year in one season, we can see life return to that farm if we go regenerative. Wow. And so the healing is so fa- so much faster than the damage. And wow. we have to know that before we give up hope. That it makes me sounds really like hopeful. 70 to 80 years left before we go extinct is impossible. How could we recreate and change everything? And then you hear that soil destroyed could heal in a single season. That gives me hope. And mm-hmm. I see the same thing in my patients. As soon as they make the fundamental changes in their environment their biology changes, their consciousness changes overnight, not in years. So I'm curious about that because you're talking about the soil changing in a season, which is the microbiome of the earth can change in one season. What are the kinds of changes that you recommend patients make that make the fastest difference in their microbiome, in their health? Are there, are there some just truths that work for everybody? Yes, there are definitely truths that work for everybody. One absolute truth is that if you reduce the amount of chemicals that are coming into your body in a day, you will be better. Mm. And so, yes, the food is is probably public enemy number one or public opportunity number one. But I would say right behind that is cosmetics. The cosmetic industry is dumping so many chemicals into the bloodstream of, of women in this world, and it's undermining their fertility. One in four women, as of 10 years ago, were having polycystic ovarian syndrome and infertility from that. And that's just one condition. And so our, our fertility is disappearing largely because the chemicals we're pumping into our bloodstream. 
even yoga, one of the healthiest, most important spiritual experiences on planet, I'm fascinated that we've turned that into an unhealthy experience because we're making women dress up in lycra, which is microplastic laden, dilate their all of their skin through the heat and sweating, and then they suck in all of those microplastics in their bloodstream from their yoga clothes, and then they lay down on their yoga mat, sweating, dilated skin, and they suck formaldehyde from the foam of their yoga mat, which is, is one of the most potent carcinogens and, you know, abortifacents on the planet. And so we can take any industry and make it toxic. We can take any practice of, of spirituality and others and make it toxic. And so at every point in your life, what are you touching? What are you breathing? What are you, mm. what are you doing to interact with nature? And where did it get divided? When you drive in your car, something as simple that works for every single person instantaneously is roll down the windows, breathe some real air, mm. stop with all of the heating and air conditioning for a moment, yeah. pull off your sunglasses and see sunlight and real color. So many people don't even remember what a, a true color of a flower is, I think, because by the time they're outside, their sunglasses are on and they're seeing that through a muted experience and they're not getting the vibrant, energetic experience of what does a yellow sunflower actually look like and mm -hmm. what does that do to my psyche when that yellow hits my retina, vibrates at that frequency and, and creates an antidepressant in my brain. I can't wow. even have that experience because I'm wearing sunglasses, you know. And so that that kind of simple thing of where, what are all the layers that you've been told to put up against you and nature? My wife recently looked up the definition of nature, and it was a game changer. Nature, as defined in Webster's and the like, is anything plant, animal, mineral, or otherwise that is non-human in the planet. And so somehow we wrote ourselves out of the definition of nature and our entire technological world and our product world and everything else has, has married to that belief that nature is against us and we need to put divides between us and nature. Our shoes, we have shoes that are, are rubber sold. The rubber is a perfect insulator against the largest anti-inflammatory source that we have, which is the surface of the planet, which is a continuous stream of negative charge that comes from outer space through the aurora borealis and the northern lights into our feet. And that negative charge is the opposite of disease. Cancer is positive charge. Chronic inflammation, positive charge. We have a negative charge source called Mother Earth, and we insulated ourselves from that in the 1960s when we went from leather soles to rubber soles across the board, and we've seen nothing but chronic disease explode ever since we stopped touching the Earth. And so I make all my patients sleep on grounding sheets, realizing that I can't get them to touch the ground during the day. At least I can get them to touch the ground during the night. What is a grounding sheet? It's a it's a sheet that goes over your the the I like the the half sheets that go over the lower half of your bed, and it's a normal you know two hundred eighty thread cotton sheet. But then uh, every centimeter is a silver thread, and that silver uh, thread then plugs into a central copper conductor, and then has a little spike that drops into the earth outside your window, or you can do it into your grounding peg on your nearby outlet. And you now are touching Mother Earth all night long. And the anti-inflammatory effect throughout the night can be profound on sleep quality, sex drive, you know, d mood disorders, all of the rest. And so just Mother Earth's touch is, is a critical piece. And, and running barefoot for a second, and mm. if you haven't been barefoot recently, don't run. Just stand there because you've got sensitive feet. But stand in the grass for a moment and just mm -hmm. experience what it feels like to have grass between your toes. It's crazy mm. good. Yeah, walk on of, a beach. Mm -hmm. a, a friend of mine who's a health practitioner in Chicago uh, makes people go outside and root around in the earth bare, with bare feet. Yes. 
Just to get reconnected. And it's a crazy feeling when you haven't done it in a long time. Crazy feeling. You forget, right? Mm -hmm. And then everybody goes on vacation to the Bahamas or Florida or something, and they go to the beach for a week. And little bit known to them is they've just started grounding for the first time. And they all want to move to Florida by the end of their vacation because they're like, this place is so great. Well, they're not experiencing a great place. They're experiencing Mother Earth for the first time. You have Florida right outside your backyard, no matter where you live. You have Mother Earth right there to embrace your feet and to feed you the information. Of course, if you start walking on soil and dirt, what are you actually getting? You're actually getting the microbiome as well. And so when you go out there, it's not just the electrical energy of Mother Earth, it's biodiversity. And if you will walk around in the dirt with those bare feet, you will have a different microbiome on the skin, which will then inform the rest of the microorganisms in your gut and beyond. Mm. When you pull a weed, you know, here we're talking about Roundup, which is just a weed killer. If we had stopped, if we hadn't, if we hadn't stopped pulling weeds and, and we started just deciding we had to kill them, we would have this incredible microbiome, right? Because when you pull a weed, there's this explosion of dirt and, mm-hmm. and microorganisms into the air and you breathe that. And so how do we get reconnected? We get outside, we start interacting, not just to eat the food, but actually interact with soils itself. We pull weeds. Uh, I'm a huge fan of eating off the vine. This is a, we don't have time to talk through this whole crazy cool thing, but no animal on earth goes around eating eating the food off the ground. Well, that's not quite true. There's some scavengers out there. But for the most part, the mammals are all eating living food off the plant. We're the ones that decided we were going to pick that food off the plant, ship it for miles, let it stew in backs of trucks and everything else for for weeks, and end up with this low energy state, dying, rotting food that's you know in its mm-hmm. last semblances. And you've seen this. Like how fast does does a tomato go now if you buy it? And if you're not eating that potato, it starts to rot. And it's like, why is this food rotting so quickly? It's because we're pulling it out of its original source. And so, I really encourage people to eat a tomato off the vine. It's a crazy experience because the moment you touched that thing, it lost its surface. A tomato untouched actually has this, this fuzz on it, a tiny, tiny like peach fuzz-like experience. And in that oh. fuzz is this very interesting microecosystem and and nutrient source as well. And so if you, without touching the tomato, will lift the vine and pluck that off, you just had an experience that no human has had in the, in America in, in probably generations. And so inform yourself by the nature you can touch. Inform life within you by the nature you will touch today. And so that's what our our whole thing is now at our clinic and in, in my biotech company. I was working to extract things from fossil soils to bring back life that just hasn't been touched in eons. Mm. And we've only been here for 200,000 years, and yet we're accessing mineral nutrients now that are and communication between the microbiome from 60 million years ago from the fossil soils. And when you put that in a human system, there's no human cell that's ever seen that before. And so it's so exciting to realize, like, as we start to understand that Mother Nature wanted us to not just co-create with the soil in the backyard, but that we have the entire fossil record of life on the earth to interact with. And so when we put these things together, you realize that life can really be something we've never seen before. We are not scratching the surface of human longevity and the, the opportunity for optimal wellness. It's a very exciting thing that we none of us have maybe ever seen life healthy. Wow. It makes me excited. And thank you for the resources. I, I think that that's all just so helpful. One thing I'd like to ask, I have two more questions for you. Um, I think a lot of people will wonder when we talk about regenerative agriculture, if it's more expensive 
because we've been cultured to believe that things that are good for us are more expensive when really when you talk about, you know, the shift we made, for example, with sort of home farming in the 1940s, eating organic local used to be the cheapest way to go. It was essentially free. Uh, so can we dispel that that fear? Because in fact, regenerative agriculture is not more expensive, correct? It's cheaper by a mm-hmm. long shot. And so mm-hmm. the way that we can, you know, 5X and 10X farmers income over the period of five years, we can actually achieve a lot of that in the first year. And so the main expense to a farmer today who's been doing chemical farming is chemical inputs. Mm-hmm. That's uh, chemical fertilizers that are derived from petroleum. It's chemical herbicides, pesticides of increasing complexity. Mm-hmm. Because we have Roundup-resistant weeds all over this country now, that farmers are unable to spray, spray Roundup alone, so they have to spray dicamba and 2,4-D, which mm-hmm. is Agent Orange, and uh, all these chemicals as a stew into their land. The cost of all that chemical input is extreme. And then their next greatest cost is diesel fuel to run the tractors and the equipment and everything else that's plowing the fields. So if you Hmm. suddenly stop putting in fertilizer, putting in herbicides and pesticides and stop plowing the field, you just eliminated 85% of all the cost of the farmer. And so that's how you can double up their, their income very quickly is in one or two years, they're doubling their income on the bottom line because they didn't pay all the banks and, and chemical companies all this money to put the inputs in. And you're now allowing Mother Nature to do it better than the chemical companies could. Mm. So then you see your yields improving. And so uh, one of, many of our farmers experienced under the, their decades of chemical farming that their yield of soybean, for example, went from 42 bushels down to 28 bushels over the course of 17 years. That bankrupts a farm right there if you yeah. lose half of your, your fertility. What we're doing now, we've got a good example of this. So we're using the fossil soil to demonstrate the power of regenerative farming if we do it quickly. But uh, we just finished our one of our big test plot studies, and we could take tomatoes and grow them in a non-chemical environment. So we weren't adding herbicides, pesticides, anything else, but just mm-hmm. soil management as you would do today. Water it, maybe give it a little compost. And we, and we grow about 3.2 pounds of tomatoes out of a tomato plant. If you do take that that intelligence of the fossil soil and put that back into to modern soils, we were producing 35 pounds of tomatoes out of the same plant. And so you can 10x that return on a tomato plant by doing something deeply regenerative and getting information and biodynamic experience in that soil. And so when we start delivering all of that to the world and and that education that would help that, I think we can't even imagine how fast we can reverse climate change and the like. Wow, Our contribution so is CO2 in the atmosphere. It's, it's tiny compared to what nature creates. We create, you know, depending on who you talk to, anywhere from 10 gigatons to 35 gigatons of carbon a year. The ocean produces 90 gigatons of carbon a year. The soils produce 280 gigatons a year. And so Mother Earth is good at producing and absorbing CO2. We broke that cycle when we, when we killed her lungs, which is the soil itself. And so when we killed the lungs of the planet, we started getting CO2 accumulation in the air. Wow. We can reverse that in literally in five years. We could reverse everything. We only need to improve carbon sink capacity or carbon cycling capacity of the soil by 0.4% in all, all of our agricultural lands. And we will reverse the, the carbon phenomenon uh, for the globe and, and, and change the trajectory of global warming. And so in our soils, on many of the farms that have been doing biodynamics, they're not improving, improving it by 0.4%. They're improving by 800% over a decade. Wow. And so... 
you don't have to improve all of the soil of the planet. If you're growing 800% better carbon cycling in soil, you could do that over a very small percentage. And so our org is really set out to, to regenerate 5 million acres at a deeper level of carbon cycling than mm-hmm. has ever been done so that we could really magnify that to 500 million acre impact. Yes. I mean, that would be a dream if we could, if we could do this across the planet. I'd, I'd be very excited to see. We the results. will, or Good. or Mother Earth will do it without us. And so, right. that's Fair the point. exciting thing Those is like choices. you know it's going to happen. Yeah, uh, Mother Earth is going to recover herself. She's done it five other times. There's been five other great extinctions on the planet, and through the same process of killing her topsoil. Interestingly, so the dinosaurs all went extinct when there was an asteroid and killed the topsoil through right. a layer of dust. And so, when we lose topsoil, when we kill that microbiome, we lose life on Earth. Wow. And so we're doing that again now through our own human behavior, but we can change that instantaneously. Over the next five years, mm-hmm. I really believe we could change the entire agricultural system of the whole world, and we could see a complete reversal of, of our impact, and we could start to understand, all right, if that works at the soil level, then what is a cell phone going to look like in mm-hmm. 10 years? I have a real passion for reinventing the idea of our technological wireless communication because cells do wireless communication, which means water does wireless communication. Fungi do wireless communication. So why did we think we needed radiation devices to create information streams uh, across the planet? We don't need it. Nature's already shown us how to do wireless communication. And so we need to start designing in the mindset of what did Mother Nature to do to do life and do communication and do, you know, regenerative and, in fact, generative process where life on Earth is always better every year because there's more diversity, because there's no, more knowledge, there's more shared electrons, there's more of everything. And that's where we're heading, I think, is the potential of either massive metamorphosis as a species in a planet or a rapid decline, and then Mother Earth starts over. Wow. I'd like to vote for option A, please. <laughs> Good call. That'd, that'd be my choice. Awesome. Um, Do you want to run for president? <laughs> hey, we can talk about it. Maybe we all, maybe we should run as a unit, you know, get a couple of like-minded people and just try to change the system. I'm not opposed. It's totally doable. Yeah. And we're seeing governors do that. We're seeing mm-hmm. you know, local community members do that at their city council level. Yeah. Um, we can stop letting, waiting for the, the, the candidate to come down the pathway and we could simply create a new, a new pathway for politics. I like that plan. So I have a final question for you, which I ask everyone. The title of the pod is Work in Progress. And I'm curious when you hear that phrase, what comes to mind as a work in progress in your life right now? Me. <laughs> I'm a total work in progress. It's Same. interesting. Yeah, it's like for all the stuff I do and think and experience and all my companies are doing so many fascinating, interesting things. I'm surrounded by brilliant people all the time. And yet, you know, in my simple you know, experience with my wife waking up on the pillow every morning, I'm amazed that I'm not a better human being. I'm amazed that I'm not better at communicating than I am. I'm amazed that I get frustrated. I'm amazed that I can feel any sense of of scarcity in my life at all because I know I come from a universe of abundance. I know I come from a complete energy source that only wants me to thrive and rise and, and reconnect to it. And so how how is it that I fall short of that each day? And so I am a work in progress, and I'm very excited to see who I can become in the next years by continuing to surrender what people are telling me today. Mm. That's great. Thank you so much. So glad to be here with you. Thanks, Thanks for coming. Appreciate you. Yeah, likewise. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.